we were in New Guinea in 1956. I was 10 months old. And uh, it was pioneer missions. You know, this is way back in the day when uh, there were certain parts of the world that had never never heard anything. Have, have you anybody read Peace Child or Eternity in Their Hearts, Don Richardson? Okay. He was in the swamps when we were in the highlands. So some of his stories are about the tribe that I grew up in. Now, New Guinea is kind of unusual. It has over 800 unrelated language groups. It's an anthropologist's dream world, right? And nobody knows why and can't figure it out. But it's kind of like the Tower of Babel was right in the middle. You know, when all the languages got confused and they couldn't get off the island. So... But uh, so 850, 800 plus language groups, and ours is Dani, and Dani is um, it's a it's one of the largest tribes in New Guinea. If you read any Ted Decker, Ted Ted Decker was like a valley over from us, and um, um, and he's a little younger than I am, not much, although he looks like a lot younger than me, and um, but. Um, Ten months old, we go into this culture, 40 to 60,000 people in this tribe, over 100 square miles. And in New Guinea, the tribes are basically separated by land issues, like big rivers or mountain ranges or swamps or something. And that's kind of what isolates these people groups. And um, the only time they really care about each other is when they're trying to kill each other. And, um, and you know, warfare and all that. So we had... Uh, warring, spirit-worshipping, ritualistic cannibals. The first book ever written about the valley called the Baling Valley that I grew up in is called Cannibal Valleys by Russell Hitt. And uh, so, you know, funny side story. I'm doing an interview on television, right? It's a taped interview. And if you've read The Shack, you know that for the most part, when you tell somebody about it, you don't don't really want to try to... Describe it. It's not the easiest book in the world to describe. So people are interviewing me all over the place about the book and it's easy to spot somebody who hasn't read it. All they read is the back cover. And they think that that's enough to give them an idea of what's going to happen in the book, right? And so it's kind of like fun to me when I'm being interviewed by somebody that I know hasn't read it. Right? Because I, mean, I can take them down any kind of wild goose chase, right? And... Um, so this gal, she's interviewing me, and, uh, and she says, So you grew up around cannibals? And I said, Yep. Totally changed my view of finger food. <laughs> right? And she goes, Oh, that's fascinating. And, whew. and you know what's really funny is that they kept it. I mean, they didn't edit it out. <laughs> Somebody in the editing room is, didn't like her. And they're going, she'll never pick up on this, right? So they left it in there. But, so I grew up in a way, I thought everybody, you know, grew up around cannibals. And uh, because the way you grow up is kind of normal until you run into other people. And um, so here we've got a, uh, a, a tribe that speaks a language nobody has ever heard before. And I'm 10 months old. And I was raised uh, by the tribal people. My parents were part of a a generation of missions where if you did the work of God, God would take care of the kids. That was kind of the assumption. And and they had no idea. They're in their 20s. They don't have any idea how dangerous this place is. Not really. They didn't know that because I was raised inside the tribe that I was around their conversations that they were trying to figure out whether to kill my parents or not. And and I was uh, around... uh, the, the inside of what was going on and my parents didn't have a clue. They didn't have a clue. And, it, and it, there were elements of that that were really wonderful because the tribal culture was, had some really great things. But there were some things that were very awful. And, um, and you know, they didn't know why I had night terrors as a child. They didn't know. Um, they just didn't know about a lot of things. And... And, but it's a world I grew up in. So when I was five years old, Wycliffe came in to translate the language, to put it in some kind of written form. And I was the only one in the world that could speak English and Dani. So I was the informant for Wycliffe translators when I was five years old. 
So that's the world I grew up in. And um, uh, it, it was complete with witch doctors and the whole thing, right? Um, now, in, in the Dani tribe, uh, when I say unrelated language groups, I mean like unrelated language groups. There was no common language, no trade language, nothing you know that connected them. And so ours was Dani. The northern tribe to us was Damal. And Damal was a tonal dialect. Like, it's like Chinese and English difference. And so really disparate. Um, in our tribe, warfare was a highly organized event. Not much different than NFL football. Um, and when you wanted to, you know, somebody's great-grandfather, great-great-great-great-ancestor stole somebody's pig and it's time to make amends and, and so you have a war. And uh, so, you know, they'd send a runner over to the village and he'd say, we'll meet you on Hill 47, uh, we'll be on 47, you'll be on 49, we'll fight in between. Right? And they have this whole system of what they're supposed to do um, in their warfare. And uh, so... Part of how they exchanged news up and down the valley was through warfare. That's how you, because they didn't use drums and stuff. There was two basic ways to communicate as far as stories going up and down, news going up and down, and one was to fight. And so as you're ducking arrows, and they had rules. If you have a spear, you can't shoot at somebody with a bow and arrow, and somebody with a bow and arrow can't shoot at somebody with a spear. It's a highly, highly civilized. And, uh, and they got guys that will run out on the field and pick up somebody that's gotten shot. you know. And they run all over the countryside. So my mom was a medical missionary, and so she, from the beginning, was taking arrows out of people and, and stuff that was happening inside the warfare. Now, uh, when, you, when you have a battle... You come up and you, you kind of stand away from each other and you send out representatives of your tribe and they go out there and they, they cuss at each other and, you know, make rude remarks about their family members and stuff until somebody gets mad enough to throw something. And that starts the war. Right? And um, so while you're fighting, you're also exchanging news, which really corrupts it. It's kind of like... You know the old telegraph thing where you talk, tell somebody a secret? Well, this is like telegraph while boxing. <laughs> right? So literally, the gospel stories would come down the valley through warfare. And by the time they got to us, they were highly corrupted. I mean, wild, crazy stories. One, one morning at about 4 o'clock, Tribal people come running into our compound and they go, is it true that if we take our wives and throw them in the river, they'll come out young again? Right? They got baptism mixed up with regeneration. Right? <laughs> no, it's probably not a good idea. <laughs> you know, and that's... The other way you transferred information and uh, in, da, in the Dani tribal culture was they used collars. Now, these forty to 60,000 people were over 100 square miles but in villages. Um, and the villages were almost within earshot of each other, all over. Now what they would do is the person that had the, the strongest voice became the caller. And when information was called up the valley, this caller would go out in four different directions and yell it out. And word would come up the valley. Uh, it's just how you communicate it. So, there was a, a woman, um, her, the tribe had a massive transition in terms of a relationship with Jesus. And it wasn't, it didn't have a lot to do with the missionaries. In fact, the missionaries were trying to keep them from, like, you think it's a good idea to burn all your weapons and all your spirit worshiping stuff? Because it kind of leaves you vulnerable. And they're going, well, you can either leave or not. We're, we're doing this because this is what God's telling us to do. And they literally had a uh, fire, uh, three foot wide, three foot high, and a hundred yards long of all their uh, spirit worshiping stuff and all their warfare stuff and and some of these folks got absolutely massacred by uh, other tribal cultures and um, they paid a pretty big price for this but um, there was this transition and part of that was in the in the Dani tribal culture they practiced adult euthanasia um, because it's a subsistence subsistence culture and so when your elderly got to the place where they're no longer 
productive, they would throw them in the river. The Baling River is a very swift, dangerous river, and it was just practice. Your elderly got old, and you threw them in the river, and um, and they were not a drain on society that way, right? Well, there was a woman, and I think her Donny name was Inongolakwe, and but her she took on a Christian name. And it was Dorcas. Do you know the story of Dorcas in Scripture? The woman who helped the poor and was a trader of purple and uh, dyes and things. Well, she took on the name Dorcas. And, and what she did on her own, she went to all the villages and she would say to them, instead of throwing your elderly in the river, would you consider giving them to me? And she created an entire village of elderly people and would care for them until they died, right? And she became sort of in the tribal culture in the interior of New Guinea, kind of like the uh, Mother Teresa of the Dani tribal people. And the thing about people like Mother Teresa, they carry a phenomenal sense of authority just by virtue of what they've done in terms of kindness and grace and and these kinds of things. And um, so she was highly regarded. Um, They didn't understand, a lot of them, why she was doing this, but she was highly regarded, especially by the elderly. (laughs) So, so, So Dorcas had this village. Well, one day, uh, and, and we knew her, uh, we came back from uh, New Guinea when I was around 10 years old. And, um, but Jim and Dolores Sunda, Aunt, Aunt Dee and Uncle Jim, they took over our mission compound. That I told you this afternoon they were the second family onto Pyramid Station that we built, my parents built. And um, so they stayed there and, and they had this long-time relationship with Dorcas. Um, now... Word comes up the valley one day that Dorcas has died, and um, and it you know the the callers are are bringing it up the valley, and um, Aunt Dee uh, checks with the callers to make sure, and sure enough, she has she has passed away, um, and and they know when somebody's dead, you know, they have their ways of making sure, <laughs> and uh, she's dead. Now, in the Dani tribal culture, they have a, a pretty set process about death. And what they do is, the day after someone dies, because it's a tropical culture, even though we're in the highlands, and it's a tropical culture, and uh, so they cremate the bodies. And, but, there is a process. So the day after someone dies, they create... It's akin to our open casket funeral. It has, uh, it's a viewing stand is what it is. And they prop the body in the viewing stand and then they drape it with nets and all of these things and you go to pay your respects. To, it's, it's like a sitting up open casket. And, but they have whalers, uh, mourners, and it is excruciatingly sad. And, uh, and so the whalers will be there and all that. And, and then they will take, and the way they transport the body is they tie it to a pole, you know, and they carry it to wherever they need to take it, to the viewing stand, and then they take it to the pyre. They burn the body the, the, the next day. So word comes up the valley, Dorcas has died. Next day, word comes up the valley that she is in the viewing stand when she comes back to life. Well, that gets everybody's attention, right? (laughs) And it's true. Dorcas has come back to life and she has said, God has given me a message for these five chiefs. And I am to deliver this message to these five chiefs. And basically, from what we understand, the message was, it's time to get your act together. Right? But it's personal. And she is, she, the word goes out, she wants to meet with these five chiefs. She, by this time, there's a, an indigenous uh, tribal community of faith, a church. And, and so when she comes back to life, she has a conversation, a public one, with the local pastor, the pastor of the, uh, the Dani tribe uh, ch- church that's there. And she says to him, a few things. Okay, one is no mourners. I don't want any whalers 
when I die. Because, see, I'm going to deliver these messages and then I want you, talking to the pastor, I want you to pray and release me back to death. He goes, I'm not going to do that. She says, oh yeah, you're going to do that. She says, no, I'm not, because they're going to think I killed you. And then they're going to kill me. Right? And so he's like, no, I'm not going to do this. She says, yeah, you'll do it. So here's what I want. You're good. You know, you're going to release me back into death after I talk to the chiefs, and then um, you're going to put me in the viewing stand, which is fine. And then you're going to cremate my body, which is also fine. But I don't want any whalers, because if you've seen what I've seen, you wouldn't be crying for me. Okay? And then she says, and here are the songs that I want you to sing as they're taking me to burn the body. I mean, she sets it all out, right? Well... As you can imagine, the five chiefs show up. Right? Because this is not like normal stuff, right? And let me say, as an aside, raising the dead is a biological event. It's nothing compared with changing or transforming a human heart. The transformation of a soul is way more complex and magnificent than raising a body. Right? Because that's just biological. What happens in the process of the healing of the soul? Much more complicated and complex. And, and, but, you know, we're so scared of the event of death that we think, you know, that's kind of the ultimate thing, right? Let me tell you, even Lazarus died again. Right? And you're all dying. I don't know if that's bad news, but hey. I was saying yesterday that Baxter, uh, his dad, says, well, how else do you think we get out of here? You know, it's kind of like... But we have such a, a small view of the reality that we're in, we think this is it. And, you know, part of that is the problem of painting imaginations of heaven with, you know, clouds and harps and a lot of boring stuff. You know, compared to a waterfall, like, how's that going to stand up, you know? And uh, so why would we want to leave? Um, and the, the point is that... We were intended to live in a physical reality. You know, the, this creation was not plan B, you know. And new heavens and new earth is not new in kind. It's refurbished. It's this, this massively cleansed physical re, uh, environment that we were intended for. We're intended to be physical human beings. So, um, so anyway, chiefs meet with her. And she has her little conversation. And then she says to the pastor, Okay, (laughs) time for you to pray me back to death. No. No, you do it. Well, and she carries all this authority, right? So he goes, Okay, everybody, I am not killing her. (laughs) Right? And he prays the most innocuous, God, whatever it is that happens to be your will... We asked that you would enact it, and she dropped dead. <laughs> Serious. Dropped dead. So, they have the, you know, the viewing, and they don't have the uh, whalers, and they sing the songs, and uh, Dorcas has died. So, there, it's, there's a grieving process. Well, two weeks later, uh, she, she didn't rise from the dead again, just so you know. But... <laughs> But two weeks later, word comes up through the callers. Okumarek is dead. Now we knew Okumarek. He was a witch doctor. Who had... Aunt Dee was the one who led him into a relationship with Jesus. But she was always convinced it hadn't stuck. Right? Because he's kind of a snake. And, and so there was always this thing about Okumarek. So when the callers came up the valley, Akumarek is dead. Aunt D says, good. <laughs> right? It's like, good. Because <laughs> he's kind of a snake. The next day, the callers come up. Akumarek has risen from the dead. And she goes, that snake. Right? Because... Of course Akumarek would do this. After all the attention that Dorcas got for, you know, rising from the dead, it would be just like Akumarek to rise from the dead. Right? So she is just ticked. Right? 
And she's asking, all right, are you sure he's dead? He was dead? Like, really? Oh, yeah. Says uh, they had checked him every which way. You know? And, uh, and they got ways. So, and he was, he was on the pole going to the viewing stand the next day when he came back to life. Well, she doesn't believe it. So, the next day, she is uh, going out to the, the, of a little hut outside their house where they store everything and she was going out there to get stuff for Uncle Jim's lunch. And she is on her way out there and a Kumarek is sitting right in the path, well, right next to the path. And she totally ignores him because she is so mad at him, right? She ignores him. So she walks into the hut and, and she's getting her stuff that she needs for the lunch and she turns around and a Kumarek is right in her face. And he says, Mama, I need to talk to you. Yeah, what do you want to talk to me about? I saw him. You saw him? Who did you see? I saw him, you know? The big one. (laughs) She goes, who are you talking about? He says, God, I saw God. Oh yeah, right. He says, Mama, you, you don't understand. I saw him. And she, go, and she starts asking him all these questions, right? And he finally, he's kind of looking confused and he looks at her and he says, why are, you, why are you asking me all these questions? He said, you know how in Donnie they don't have colors. They, don't, um, they have uh, two words. One means bright and one means dark. And um, they, don't, they don't have words for colors. And so he says... You know when you missionaries, you come here and you're all dressed in your bright, your brights, you know? He said, what I saw, your brights would look dark. Right? And, and she's peppering him with questions because she does it, she's like... <laughs> and finally he says, why are you asking me this? He, she says, why shouldn't I be asking you this? And he says, because you were there. She goes, what? He says, you. You're the one that introduced me to him. You said to God, this is a Kumarek, my son who I gave birth to. And she said in that moment, she felt like this big. And he begins to describe who else is there. During this encounter and meeting, and it included both my parents who are both still living. There is something about the inner flow of time and space and all these things that we don't even begin to understand. Like I was saying this afternoon, one of my favorite sections of the historical part of the New Testament is that Jesus is talking to a couple dead guys and they've been dead for a few hundred years. (laughs) Elijah and Moses. It's not made up. And they're talking to him about what he's facing in Jerusalem. And we have a cloud of witnesses. Right? I don't understand all that stuff, but let me tell you. You can call Aunt Dee and she will tell you this story. She was there, right? <laughs> and uh, now I ran into Aunt Dee. I, haven't see, I hadn't seen her in a lot of years. And, and I found out where they lived. They're, they're now retired, although Jim goes back and does some work in, in Erion. But, but uh, their daughter, Margie, who I went to boarding school with, Margie found me because I happened to be on an, a national game show. <laughs> it's nuts. I have a really weird life. And uh, um, on a, in 2000, on a Thursday night, my daughter Amy dials an 800 number, hands me the phone on a Thursday night, and I am sitting in front of Regis Philbin on Who Wants to Be a Millionaire that Sunday, right? Come on, how nuts is that? And because I'm on that show... Margie finds me, Margie Sunda. And, um, and that plays a significant piece in, into this part of the story. So, uh, I know, kind of nuts, right? It's true, you can look it up. William Paul Young, who wants to be a billionaire? Right? Uh, did I? Boy, I, I kind of thought that might be coming, right? So, I ended up on there twice, 
Because what happened was, I, I took Chad, our oldest. Chad's kind of a brilliant kid. And uh, so I took him with me because Kim was going camping with the kids that Sunday, right? And so they went camping and I went to New York with Chad. And we ended up, they were taping shows. This is at the height of Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? And they were taping these shows and they were getting up to the point where they, they were for the first time in their show going to take a 30-day hiatus to let the crew take a break, right? And it was the first time they'd done it. And this is one that's on like three, four times a week, right? So they had been double taping their shows, working up to the point where they could take 30 days off and they would play these taped shows up until the Grammys and then they would come back and on the, a Monday after the Grammys, they would, they would record the first show after it and air it the next night, right? Do you understand the... Okay, so so when I get to New York, that Thursday night, Amy calls at 800 number, hands me the phone, says, Dad, answer this. What? One, two, three, four is A, B, C, D. Okay, uh, put these uh, four R&B female musicians in order of birth. I mean, they were not easy questions, right? But I got a, a weird mind for that kind of stuff, and I answered all three of them right. Because I find out later that if you answer one of them wrong, they boot you up, the system shuts down on you, right? So I answered all three of them right. Well, I get a phone call. I guess I went into this pool of thousands of people who answered three questions, right? And they drew like 500 names out of it. And then they called each of those persons and gave them a phone number to call with a PIN number and you had to answer five questions. So I did. Well, whoever answers those goes into a pool, they draw 10 names, and those people go to New York. Thursday night, she dials the 800 number. Sunday, I'm sitting in New York. At who wants to be a millionaire? Like, weird, right? And Kim's, she's going, just make it to 32,000. <laughs> right? Because that's after that, you, the, the worst you can do is 32,000, right? So, <laughs> it's the whole nut. The whole thing is nuts. I end up, uh, it's, we get there and our, Chad and my suitcases went to Atlanta and somewhere else. And then, and we have to show them what we're gonna wear, what I'm gonna wear, and then my, our suitcases don't show up till like one in the morning, and I have to go show them my stuff, plus our room, the, the, uh, heater got stuck on on, so it's like 98 degrees. <laughs> and then the bus comes to pick us up at six which is 3 o'clock Portland time. So I'm kind of in a daze, right? And so they're doing two tapings that day. We're in the second group. And so I'm watching, the. we get to watch the first group do all their training and stuff. And just so you know, they are very clear about the fact that Regis is a terrible player. He doesn't know the answers, but he thinks he does. And if you don't, if you're not careful, he will lead you down the garden path, convinced that he knows the answer, and he will get you to go with his answer, and then he'll act really surprised, because he is, that he was wrong. <laughs> so they, I mean, they, they tell you over and over not to, you know, to be careful about this. And uh, wh whatever you do, don't let Regis take you down the path, because he wants you to win, but he doesn't know the answers. And so... Um, so we went through all this and we're watching this other group and you know you said they had the two parts the ring of fire part the outside part which is unbelievably nerve-wracking uh, one thing is that when when the the answers come up on the screen you have a b c d but on your on your pad that you have to enter them it's a b c d enter reverse so because you can enter a c change your mind hit the reverse change it as soon as you hit the, en the enter button, you can reverse it, but as soon as you hit the enter button, it locks it in, time-wise, because they've got to do it so that nobody can sue them and all this stuff, right? So we're watching this group, and then you know they go through their thing, and they have a holdover who's coming on to our show, right? Because they always they like to have somebody as a holdover. So they, they come on to our show, and, and, uh, and, then, and then we got to practice. And they're, answer, they're asking simple questions like, put these parts of your body in order from head to foot. You know? And I'm getting them wrong. I mean, they're like simple things. And I'm, I look at Chad, I'm exhausted. And I, and I go, choke, right? Because I'm, 
Like, the pressure is like unbelievable. So, anyway, we're taping our show now. It's late in the afternoon. We're sitting there, and uh, there was a gal that Chad and I had lunch with, and she's in her 20s. And when we had lunch with her, we, we knew, okay, she's going she's gonna to smoke us. And, and she did. During the practice, first one every time. And, and Chad, he was great. Chad is 19 at the time. I think he's 19. He was uh, attending Cal, uh, Caltech. Very bright boy. And, and he said, Dad, when the questions are harder, you'll do better. That's, and he's trying to encourage me, right? Because I'm choking on parts of the body. Yeah, well, cannibal. Never mind. I, it's just my warped sense of whatever. And so, uh, so anyway, Chad is, uh, he's encouraging me in all this. Well, the questions come up now and they're harder. The first one that comes up, I come in second, timing-wise, smoked by this young girl. And she gets into the hot seat. So you're in the ring of fire. It's called the ring of fire on the outside. Once you're in the hot seat, things slow down because you get as much time as you want and you got your you know, phone a friend thing and your ask the audience thing and your 50-50 thing. Your, uh, what do they call those? Lifelines, thank you. So, um, so I'm in the ring of fire and I come in second on the first question and she goes into the hot seat. And she's doing really great. She gets to like 125,000, which takes a bunch of time, right? They're taping it. She gets to 125,000 and comes up with a question and Regis thinks he knows the answer. And he begins to try to lead her to the answer. And you can see it. She bites. And when it, and he goes, and you're? Oh, wrong. So sorry, right? Because he thought she was going to be right. Because it was his answer. And she bit. So the so she's off at 32,000, which is not so bad. You know, because that's what Kim had said, just make it to 32,000, you know? Because we were in a really difficult place right at that moment. And it was like, well, this is interesting. So the next question was about country western music, which I, I just guessed. I had no clue. I guessed, and I didn't even get it right. So that person gets to 64,000, which takes a bunch of time. Then, um, by this time, we've had the holdover and two contestants that are in the hot seat. I don't even want to know. <laughs> don't want to know. Okay. Don't worry about it. They're okay. So, so uh, the gal gets to uh, whatever she gets to. hundred. I think she got it to 120. 100, no, she got to 64,000 and then she uh, left. So she got 64. So it's taken a bunch of time. And, and so there's eight of us left in the ring of fire and there's this five minute pause. And the question that they have on the floor that they're going back with the director and everything and the producer is, do we want a holdover? Because we're in the last show before they take a 30 day break. Right? So do we want a holdover? They decide after five minutes that yes, they do. So they ask the next question and I get it. Now I'm a Canadian and the question was after the president and vice president put the next four in order of power, I smoked them, right? Because Canadians know a lot more about the US than Americans do. It's true, right? And so, so I go, yes, because I'm exhausted. I, I got it. So I go to the hot seat and the, and the director goes, uh, we totally missed that shot. Could you do that again? So if you do see it, it's faked. Right? Now, when you get in the hot seat, everything stops and they have to go back through and make sure the computers did it right and nobody's arguing that they actually did it and pushed the button and all this stuff, right? So I'm in the hot seat. I answer the $100 question and the $200 question and the time's over. And I have to go back to Portland for 30 days. I'm the last, I'm the holdover with a 30 day break. Right? So I go back to Portland for 30 days. And I, I, it's so funny, I can tell my family. So I call Kim. She's, at, she's down camping at Loon Lake. I say, 
She goes, well, how'd you do? I said, honey, I only won $200. She goes, oh, that's okay. I said, but I got to go back. What? Right? I mean, it's so fun. So I go back for 30 days. They're using up all the shows, and I got to go back to New York. But they didn't show Chad on camera, so I took Kim. Right? Because she wasn't, he wasn't, and he becomes one of my lifelines. Right? You have five lifelines, and one of them is Chad, my son. So, the day before we go back, uh, Kim's sister uh, Chrissy is having a birthday party over in Vancouver. And so we go over there, and Chad, now he's uh, a physics major at Caltech at the time. And um, that's why there are fractals in the shack, you know. And so it's kind of cosmology has been sort of a, a hobby. He outpaced me very quickly. But I still like that whole conversation about quantum physics and all this stuff. So we're talking in the car. And we start talking about the solar system. And I said, you know, one of the cooler things about our solar system is Jupiter. Right? Because Jupiter is this massively heavy planet spinning at such a high rate of speed that it creates this unbelievable gravitational field. And because of that gravitational field, the Earth still exists. If it wasn't for Jupiter, we'd have been obliterated eons ago because Jupiter acts like a cosmic vacuum cleaner and sucks in all these major meteors and asteroids into its gravitational field. And as a result, there's this asteroid belt that exists between Mars and Jupiter. We're having this conversation, right? Kim's going, oh yeah, great, whatever. wonder what I'll make for supper, you know? But, but this is where Chad and I kind of connect. Next day, Kim and I fly to New York. Actually, we took one of her sisters and one of her good friends. So, so we're in New York, and I'm the first one on the show because I'm the holdover, so I'm going to be taped first. And then we got the rest of the day off plus the next day. And the next day, Kim and I are going to fly home. There's 40 people coming to our house to watch it because they're going to air it the next day, and we're going to make it home before the show. So, so nobody's going to know what happened. So I'm in the hot seat. I'm at question 200, right? Okay? So we start working our way up. I'm, my goal, 32,000, right? And, uh, which is a big, huge deal for us right there. And um, so about 8,000, um, no, about 4,000, I run into a question and I blank on it. I totally blank. And, and Regis thinks he knows the answer. And he begins leading me down, and I'm thinking, wait, that's probably not the answer. If Regis is thinking this is the answer, <laughs> right? And I literally had to shut him out, and I said, hold on a second. And I had to close my eyes, and I'm thinking, what's the answer to this? And I, I got it. And I, I was right. We get to 8,000. 8,000. And it's, um, it's a question about a movie that I hadn't seen. Uh, and the question goes like this. Uh, what movie, what um, major uh, musician played himself in the movie High Fidelity? And there were four, ma and I was a rock and roll disc jockey for four years. So it's not like I don't know, but I hadn't seen the movie. And I knew, I knew that the likelihood is that if I picked Chad, he hadn't seen the movie either. But I also knew that Chad was sitting in Vancouver, Washington with four high-speed internet connections up. <laughs> You're allowed to do that. It's you can do whatever you want. You have 30 seconds. That's it. Right? And so I knew that if I picked Chad as my lifeline... Well, first I picked to ask the audience. Oh, great. You know how the, the little scales come up? Well, they came back 22, 21, 23 and 19 as far as the choices. I'm going, great. And it turns out that the one they picked as number one wasn't the right answer. So obviously they hadn't seen it either. And you know what? What I've also learned is that people pick the wrong thing on purpose just to throw that whole scale off, right? You'll see this. If, somebody, if they were down to like 50-50 uh, uh, and then they went to the audience, people would pick one, you know, answers that weren't even one of the two options. Just because they want to say to their friends, see that? That was me. Right? So, so I realize this audience has no clue. And I don't know. I can't trust their answer. So I, needed, I, I went to phone a friend. And I picked Chad. 
because I knew I could spin the question and he could be instantly on it. So I switched it to in the movie High Fidelity so that he would be on the question, right? Now Chad is 19 years old. He is nervous, right? He's been on the phone. He doesn't know, you know, when Regis comes on, he says, Chad, you know, uh, your dad's doing great. He's at $8,000, you know? And so uh, you have 30 seconds. So I get on the phone and I say, Chad, in the movie High Fidelity, and, and he is on it, right? In the movie High Fidelity, which rock star played himself? And he, he, he went to the movie High Fidelity, he went to the cast of characters, and he found Bruce Springsteen. But he was nervous about it. And in his nervousness, he formed it in the form of a question. Bruce Springsteen? <laughs> and I'm... The first thought that goes through my mind is, Chad, I don't need a question. <laughs> right? And the second thought that goes through my mind is, oh my gosh, I'm on national television with my son. <laughs> How cool is this? Right? And at that point, what goes through my mind, it's all inside the 30 seconds, what goes through my mind is, I don't care if he's wrong. Right? This is so incredible. And it just struck me. And... I say, to, I say to Chatty, because I know we're running out of time, and I say, hey Chatty, I love you with all my heart, right? And I do this, because it's something that our, our family is very expressive. It's one of the things that is a gift to me from Kim's side of the family. And, uh, and I said, Chatty, I love you with all my heart. Phone goes dead. I tell, you know, I... Regis looks at me and he says, he says this, how much are you going to love him if he's wrong? And I tell you, it was like the Holy Spirit came down on this place. And there was this moment, and you can see it. If you watch this thing, you will see this moment. And I tell you, all of my emotions as a father just came right to the surface. And I said, he will always be my son. I mean, it was like, poof, right? And you can just see it, right? So I went with Chad's answer, and it was right. But So Chad knew that I'd made it to 8,000, but that's all he knew. And he, and, uh, and he didn't tell anybody. Now, we get up. And Regis makes an error on something and it spins a whole thing and uh, it ends up where I make it to 32,000 but I have no lifelines left. Right? But I made it to 32,000. So 64 is kind of a freebie, right? Because, hey, if you get it wrong, you're going to go to 32,000. So, you know, it'd be dumb not to at least try. I get it right. So I'm at 64,000 and now I have 32,000 to lose. Wow. Up comes the next question. And I'm not exactly sure, but I think I know the answer. And I get it right. I'm now at 125,000. That's the next opportunity, right? And um, I get it right. So by this time, things are getting a little bit like, ba-boom, you know, their whole music thing, and it's like, right? <laughs> so I am now looking, they're going to tell me the $250,000 question. Right? And the thing that's beautiful about Who Wants to Be a Millionaire is you got to see the question before you decide whether you're in or not. Right? And... Uh, and so there's, they're taking commercial breaks and building them into this whole thing and it's kind of building up and Regis looks at me and he says, okay, Paul, for $250,000, between which two planets is there an asteroid belt? <laughs> I kid you not. And I went, B, final answer. He goes, what? I mean, he loved me by this point because I'm... Um, I grew up in the highlands of New Guinea, right? I have six kids. I live in boring Oregon. I mean, this whole thing is like... He goes, what? And so I get to tell him about Jupiter and how God created the solar system. And it's like, unbelievable. 
$500,000 question comes up and I bailed on it because it was a pop culture question and I didn't know the answer. You know, and so I said, I'm done. And I walked away with $250,000. In fact, in fact, two weeks later I got the check. And, and they let you take your own taxes out eventually. They sent me a check for $250,000. And so I got it. And I go to the credit union and I... Because everybody knows. Because it was on TV the next day. There's a whole bunch of other stories. But uh, you, know what, you know what rippled through the culture? Is my interaction with my son. I got more mail about that in interaction about that little connection with my son than anything else that ever happened with regard to that show. So, so I get the check, I go to the credit union, they're all like over the moon thrilled about this whole thing. And I'm 250,000 bucks, you know. And I, I hand it in and I run out to the ATM and I have the slip. $250,034.17. I mean, we were down, right? So Kim, meanwhile, is driven down to California to Pasadena to visit Chad and she checks the ATM outside of Costco because she wants to buy him some things but she's thinking and she looks at this going wow this is a mistake because it says 250,000 and then she realizes oh my gosh the check must have come <laughs> so Chad got plenty of stuff you know okay whole side story right now, because I was on that show, Margie Sunda, who'd been looking for me for 18 years, found me. And that, that makes sense because of this piece. The shack comes out, right? I make the 15 copies. It becomes this massive international phenomenon. And, and I'm in, uh, I have a friend in Washington, D.C. Forget the question and answer. We are not going there, just so you know. Um, I'll finish with this story and we'll, we'll see what happens. But, because uh, I don't want you to be here forever. That, that clock is wrong anyway. <laughs> but uh, it's still not been changed, you know. So, um, I have a friend named Dan Polk. Dan, uh, I have a bunch of friends, actually. And if we had a motto, the motto would be, if you like someone, you give them your time and your money. But if you love them, you give them your friends. Right? So, Scott Klausner gave me Dan Polk. Dan Polk lives in Annapolis, Maryland. And uh, he's, he's an investment banker, singer-songwriter. He had a, a record label, and he's a, he got three little kids, younger than me. And, but he and I had become really good friends. And, and Danny was setting up... A, um, one of my speaking things was in North Carolina, and I was going to do seven cities in ten days. Right? So he and I were talking on the phone about logistics. And um, so I call to talk to Danny. Now Danny, he would uh, flip houses, you know? Uh, you flip a house, and but he used it as a way to teach young men uh, trades. Right? It's very cool. And, and his goal was to break even. That's his goal. So he had a realtor that would help him find these houses, and then Danny would buy them and then flip them, but use them to help train young men in skills. Um, and some of them are coming out of prison, and you know, whatever. And and so Danny, in, he he knows construction, but he didn't have any time to do it. So the finish work, he had a contractor that did all the finish work. And he can do it, but he didn't have time. And the Finnish contractor had moved. So he lost his Finnish contractor. And this one particular day, he was kind of in a bind with regard to this because he'd taken a job for his parents and he didn't have a Finnish contractor to finish it up. And so he, he happened to mention this to his realtor who would find the houses. And the realtor said, hey, you know there's this new kid in town, young man, great reputation as a Finnish contractor. And uh, Danny said, can I have his name? Yeah, here. So he, they found his name and phone number. Danny calls him and says, hey, would you come over and do measurements on the project I'm working on to do the finish work? He said, sure. So this young man is in the room doing measuring when I called Danny about the trip to North Carolina. You follow? So we talked for 15 minutes. Danny gets off the phone and this young man, this, Finnish, this new Finnish contractor, turns to Danny and said, Hey Danny, was that William P. Young you were talking to on the phone? Was that the guy that wrote The Shack? Yeah? Why? My father went to school with him in New Guinea. My father-in-law. Really? You want to talk to him? So Danny calls me back. 
right? And he explains this. Hey, I, I lost my finished contractor. You know, I'm flipping these houses. And uh, my realtor mentioned that there was this kid. So I called him up and he happened to be in the room when we were talking and he overheard our conversation. And he says, his father-in-law went to school with you in New Guinea. What? What's his father-in-law's name? What's your father-in-law's name? Joe Smith. I said, Joe Smith that went to boarding school in Santani? Is your father-in-law the Joe Smith that went to boarding school? Yeah, here, talk to him. I'm on the phone talking to Joe Smith's son-in-law. And nice kid. I talk to him for like, you know, 10 minutes. I get off. He hands the phone back to Danny. I say, hey, Danny. Joe Smith was my primary sexual abuser in boarding school. He goes, I go, please, don't say anything. I forgave him a long time ago. And Danny doesn't. Well, what I didn't know was Joe Smith was back in the U.S. He was raising support to go back overseas. And... Uh, the last I'd seen Joe was 30 years before this at a missions conference and when I saw him I locked up. I just physically froze. The last I'd heard of him was because when Margie found me we started talking about all the abuse in boarding school. And six months later she had confronted Joe Smith about this and his response had been in 2000, boys will be boys. That's the last I knew. So. Danny didn't say anything. It happened that Joe Smith was raising support and spent the night a couple weeks later at his son-in-law's house. And his son-in-law says, Hey, you'll never believe who I talked to on the phone. William Paul Young, who wrote The Shack. I get an email from Joe. We need to talk. I am in Orlando at a book thing. Um... And I'm on my way to breakfast where I'm speaking to 300 people. And I, the email had come in and I, I don't know why. I just, I called it. And Joe picked up the phone. And he says, uh, Paul, my wife and I are on our way to New Orleans. We're driving in Atlanta traffic right now. I'm a little afraid for my life. It's rush hour. Can we talk tonight? I'm halfway through the shack and I want to finish it before we talk. I said, Okay. I walk into breakfast and we're doing Q&R. And the first question, first question, Paul, you've indicated there was sexual abuse in boarding school. Has any of that come to complete resolution? And I burst into tears. Right? Yeah, I've forgiven. Yeah, it's a process. Yeah. But look at this, right? And I, so I'm telling them about my conversation with Danny and... And I said, I'm, I'm talking to them tonight and they're praying for me and all this stuff and I'm going. So I call them that evening and I say, I'm in, the, I'm in the lobby at the hotel and we're supposed to go to a dinner and I've got my arm around a, a young woman who is publishing the shack in, in Europe. Her name is Wendy Grisham. Her brother is John Grisham. Right, And I'm in this conversation and Wendy kind of walked right into my arm and was listening to the conversation, right? And um, Wendy is a sweetheart of a human being. And I just didn't want to be alone in the conversation. And, uh, and she wasn't there at the beginning of it, but she was just standing there. And at one point, I'm, you know, so she comes over and, and then she listens and and I start the conversation with, Hey, Joe, I don't know if this matters to you. Um, I don't know if you care about this. I don't know if this is important to you at all, but it's really important to me. It's important that I know that you know that I forgave you a long time ago. And there's this silence on the phone, and then Joe says, That's important to me too. And for 45 minutes, we talk about the abuse. I mean, boarding school at this time, this is back in the day, it was one of the most dangerous places on the planet. And, and, and of all the kids that were in boarding school, Joe probably got it the worst. He probably spent at least half of his elementary education in lockup. 
There was a day where he was required to lay on the concrete and all the rest of the kids were required to kick him as hard as we could to prove to him what a piece of crap he was. This is a place where 12-year-old little girls would wet their beds at night because of their trauma and they were required to wear diapers during the day and sit in high chairs. It was not good. And the sexual abuse just spilled over from what was going on in the tribal cultures. Not good. So we talked for 45 minutes. At the end, Joe says, I leave back for overseas in September. Can I see you? I want to see your face. I go, man, my schedule's nuts. But it worked out that when I landed in North Carolina to do those seven cities, Joe drove down from Atlanta. And he and I sat in a restaurant and finished it. And he says, I needed to see your face to know you were okay. It was the same year, two things happened. One is, when I saw Joe, it was the first time in my memory that he looked small. Same year, first time in my life my dad had looked small. Both indicative of the kind of healing that I'd gone through. Right? And Joe drives me over and drops me off, meets Danny. Talk about a full circle. When does that ever happen, right? There is... There is a process that we have to deal with. We have to deal with the hurt that's in our own hearts. You can't go around the shack. You have to go into it. Right? The shack is the metaphor for the heart, the soul of a human being. It becomes, for a lot of us, the house on the inside that we did not get good help building. And it's a shack. It's got walls that aren't straight. It's got sewage leaking in the basement. And we hate this place. And we think anybody who ever finds out about it will hate it too. And we think God hates this place. And what we end up doing, what I did, because I'm a religious kid, missionary kid, firstborn, preacher's kid, I took a couple pieces of the shack that I could drag out in front of the shack and I created a facade. You know a facade like in Hollywood is a quarter inch piece of plywood and you can make it look like a real building? And what you end up doing is you live from the outside in. That is, you learn how to pick up everybody's expectations and you try to paint the facade to meet them. That was a different thing in every situation. It was a survival skill. Thin layer of perfectionist performance covering up an ocean of shame. And anybody that put their finger down into that shame, up would come fight or flight. Now, of course, I'm a religious kid, so I didn't run away from relationships. I just heard God call me somewhere else. Right? Thin layer of perfectionist performance. Let me tell you one of the most powerful things about shame. And guilt is that you've done something wrong. Shame is you are something wrong. And one of the most powerful things about shame is that it will destroy your ability to distinguish between a value statement and an observation. And you may know people like this if you are not this person. Shame destroys your ability to distinguish between an observation and a value statement. Simple way to explain this. Marrying Kim was the grace of God because I didn't know how to love anybody, but I had read the book so I knew what it was supposed to look like. And I got past her crap detector and her mom's. Kim saved my life. Paid a huge price for it. When we were first married and I couldn't run away, (laughs) couldn't hear God call me somewhere else where she didn't go, I was suicidal. I mean, all my crap came rushing to the fore. But I'm a missionary kid, so I know how to adjust the culture and adapt. And 
Kim, this is the way I explain this little piece about shame. Kim would say terrible things to me like, don't mix the colors with the whites. Can you imagine somebody saying that to somebody? Right? She's talking about laundry. What did I hear her say? I heard her say, I don't know why I married such a loser of a human being as you. Because shame had destroyed my ability to distinguish between a value statement and an observation. Any imperfection tapped right into that shame and up came fight or flight. I know what my survival mechanisms and skill are. But took a long time to find out. You know what had to happen is the facade had to come crashing down. I wasn't trying to be a duplicitous person. I was actually trying to perform my way into some sort of wholeness. I was hoping if I could do it perfectly one day the facade would become a real human being. Part of my healing was to find out that God never loved the facade. He loved the shack with all its damage. We keep our secrets because we're terrified that if somebody finds out about them, we will lose the little bits of affection and approval we've been working so hard to collect that gives us some sense that we might be worth something. But we're trapped by our secrets because when somebody offers us the very things that would heal our hearts, like forgiveness and kindness and grace, we don't believe them because they don't know the secrets. So we are utterly trapped by them. Relationship takes risk. Trust is about risk. And when you don't trust, you end up controlling everything. That's our survival mechanism. The journey in relationship with God is not trying to please Him, but learning how to trust Him. You cannot trust somebody that you don't know loves you and is not good all the time. This is why the first conversation in the Bible about God is an accusation about His character. He is not good all the time. He will lie to you and you can't trust Him. Because if we can get separated into imagination about the character and nature of God, in which God is untrustworthy, all we got is ourselves. Mackenzie spent a weekend in the shack. That weekend was 11 years for me. And unfortunately, there are some of us who are so broken, the facade doesn't come down until we get caught. I got caught. And it almost destroyed my wife. Eleven years. Eleven years for her and I to heal. Eleven years for me to become the same person in every situation. I didn't even know that was possible. Eleven years for me to be able to say, I don't have any addictions. And I'm not talking only about pornography and all that kind of stuff that happens with these kinds of damage. I'm talking about pleasing my dad or doing something great for God. Talk about a gold chain addiction. Eleven years before I could say, I'm one of the healthiest people that I know. Right? I'm no different in a hotel room than I am with my grandbabies. And I didn't know that was possible. Wholeness is when the truth of your being matches the way of your being. Wholeness is when the truth of your being matches the way of your being. 
God has a high view of who you are and the Holy Spirit comes to tell you the truth about your being. And most of us are so buried inside of shame that all we hear is the lies. Number one lie for women in this world. You're not worthy yet of being loved. It's a lie. Every child does not need some form of validation for their existence. They are worthy. You matter. You're the one he left the 99 to find. Who you are matters. And he's come and climbed inside of our stuff. Didn't come alone, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. John 14 through 17. To teach us the truth of our being. And out of that, the way of our being begins to match it. Wholeness. That's the adventure that we're in. And God weaves these stories and He weaves what His purposes are and He weaves His relentless affection in a way that doesn't become a new violator. Out of respect, God submits to our crap, climbs into it, and begins to grow things out of it that are beautiful. Eleven years, and it's done in terms of the major construction stuff. Lots of finish work. I had two prayers left in 2005 when I wrote a story for my kids for Christmas. Two prayers left. One of them was, I don't want to be an old man one day and look back at my life and wonder, what would it have been like to take the risk involved in trust? I don't want to be that guy. And my second prayer was, Papa, I'm never going to ask you again to bless anything that I do. That's, that's half the prayer, right? I'm a religious kid, so I've been trying to get God to follow me my whole life. Come on, i got this great idea for me, for you. Right? Come on, follow me. You know what's so cool? God out of love will never abandon us, so He will come with us. He just won't do anything. <laughs> Give it your best shot. I'll be right here when it all falls apart. And at the end of the day, you have this sick feeling because you've had to use manipulation in all these kinds of ways to get the work of God done. Yeah. So I say, please, I'm, I'm, not, I'm done. I'm not asking you ever again to bless anything that I do. But if you've got something you're blessing and it would be okay for me to be a part of that, I'd be all over it. And I don't care if I'm cleaning toilets. It was one of my jobs at the time I wrote the shack. I don't care if I'm cleaning toilets or shining shoes or holding the doors open. I just want to know at the end of the day, you did this and you let me participate. And in God's great sense of humor, I am certain that God said, well, Paul, how about if I bless this little story that you're writing over here for your kids? You give it to your kids and then I'll give it to mine. I love that. I'm thrilled to participate. I don't even need to understand it. I don't want to understand it. And if it goes away tomorrow, I'm fine. It's a God who loves participation, who loves you with relentless affection. And it's powerful, and you can't change it. He knows the truth of who you are. And it's to the praise of His glory, centered in Jesus. Amen? Amen. Amen.